Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're actually going to read a couple of passages uh, this morning. Are you familiar with the phrase, uh, that's the crux of the matter? Or what is, if you're asking the question, what is the crux of the matter? C-R-U-X. We might, uh, I guess, I suppose we might use that phrase in reference to the most important point, right? Or the most important thing. Oh, that's the crux of the matter. That's the essence of the matter. C-R-U-X. It's actually a Latin term. And it is uh, where we get our English word cross from. Crux. Cross. It is actually, interestingly enough, where we get our English word crucial from. Crux. Cross and crucial. What is the crux of the matter? The cross is crucial. Or the most crucial thing, the most important thing is the cross. And on the screen behind me, I have tried to explain the essence of that. Uh, The cross is crucial. The cross is the crux of the matter. And I've summed it up in four statements for us. And I've labeled it the key to the Christian life. Uh, Here it is. If you were to ask me, Stephen, what is the crux of the matter? When it comes to the Christian life and being a Christian, this would be my fourfold response. Number one, believing Christ was crucified for me. And so believing that when the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, uh, he bore God's judgment and he bore my sin. And in bearing the two, he paid the penalty for my sin. That's the first point. The second point is this. Believing I've been crucified with Christ. Because you see, when I do believe in him and I receive him as my savior, the Holy Spirit makes me one with him. And because I'm one with him in God's reckoning, all that Christ has done counts as mine. So in God's reckoning from God's vantage point, as he sees me, I have been crucified with Christ. I wasn't there on the cross but I am now one with he who was on the cross. Therefore, from God's estimation, uh, God's reckoning of me as he sees me in the Lord Jesus, I have been crucified with Christ. And thirdly, that being the case, what do I do? Daily, I see myself, all that I am in Adam, my sinful self and my love of self and my sin, I see it where? Hanging on the cross. And then fourthly, the fourth point is what? I now seek to do what? Live accordingly. That is the key to the Christian life. That is the crux of the matter. The cross is crucial. Christ died for me, crucified on my behalf, paying the penalty for my sin in full. I'm one with him through faith. Because I'm one with him, as far as God is concerned, I've been crucified with Christ. I am a dead man walking. Each and every day, I see myself hanging upon the cross. And God has called me to do what? Now act like it and live accordingly. 
There you have it. The key to the Christian life. Now, Norm's going to take that away. Some of you are still jotting down or you're playing on your phone. I hope you're jotting down. I'm going to assume you're still jotting down. It will come back later, I promise you. So stay tuned if you missed a couple of those points. For now, have you found Acts chapter 18? I want to read for us the first 11 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, tent maker, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First verse. And I, when I came to you. What's he referring to? What we just read in Acts chapter 18. And I, during my second missionary journey, when I came to you, when I came to the city of Corinth, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want you to notice quickly Three things concerning Paul's preaching. Number one, notice with me his Christ-exalting message. Verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message is not about political activism. It's not. Paul's message is not about cultural or societal renewal. 
It's not. His message is not about psychological wholeness. His message, there it is. He himself identifies it again in verse 2. It is simply this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. This does not mean that all he ever spoke about or preached about was the cross. No, it means this, that the cross was always central to his preaching. Still in 1 Corinthians, just over a few pages, chapter 15, look with me at the first few verses. Chapter 15, Paul writes, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why is the cross so important to Paul? Why is it Paul would make this declaration? Return with me to chapter 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The answer is simple. There is No salvation without the cross. It is an absolute impossibility. We need to remind ourselves of that. We need to be very very clear on this when, as Christians, we engage unbelievers. Uh, As we speak with them, we will soon discover that many people uh, view their relationship, and I'm speaking of unbelievers, Uh, They view their relationship with God in positive terms. I love God, I guess. I've always loved God. I get warm, fuzzy feelings whenever I think about God, and I'm pretty sure he gets warm, fuzzy feelings whenever he thinks about me. For most people... They think of the relationship of God with God in positive terms. Many, many may not think of their relationship with God in positive terms, but they certainly think of their relationship with God in neutral terms. Well, I don't really lean this way or that way. I'm sort of non-committal. I'm somewhat indifferent, but I'm ultimately convinced that it doesn't really matter. And God isn't concerned either way. So positive terms or neutral terms. I have never met anyone, an unbeliever, who thinks of their relationship with God in negative terms. Not one. Everybody thinks in terms of positive terms or neutral terms. But the the unbeliever who actually thinks of his relationship or her relationship with God in negative terms. And yet what's the reality? That's how the Bible depicts their relationship with God, in very negative terms. Now, Paul makes this clear, for example, in Colossians chapter 1. He reminds us that before we were Christians, we were alienated from God, hostile in 
thoughts. There you have it. That is the unbeliever, the non-Christian. That is the epitome of their relationship with God as expressed in very negative terms. If you aren't a Christian, I say this again, not to be offensive. I say this not to, to pick a fight. I say this not to hurt your feelings. I say this simply because it's true. It is what the Bible says. If you're not a Christian, you are alienated from God and you are hostile in mind. Your relationship with God is neither positive nor neutral. It is negative. You are God's enemy. That is what the word of God declares. You do not have a relationship with him. However, you might imagine you have a relationship with him. There is no relationship. There is nothing but this gulf or chasm between you and him. Complete estrangement and alienation. Are you beginning to see why the cross is important? We need to be reconciled to this God. We need to find peace with this God through the blood of Christ spilt upon Calvary's cross. That's why Paul, when it comes, he comes to his message, he's very clear. Here's what I preach. Here is what I decided to know among you. Emphasize among you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it is our only hope, it is the only answer to our greatest need, which is what? Reconciliation with God through the removal of our sin, through the removal of God's judgment, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ who bore both when he hung upon the cross. That's Paul's message. Look secondly at his Christ-exalting manner. Beginning in verse 1, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, he's speaking negatively, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now be careful here. Paul is not saying that when he preached and taught among the Corinthians that he catered to the lowest common denominator. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying or insinuating or implying that when he preached, he dumbed down his message. That isn't what he means. Nor is he claiming for one moment that when I came, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, meaning simply this, that I reveled in ignorance. That's not his point. When he says these words, I did not come proclaiming, preaching with lofty speech or wisdom. He simply means that he did not trust in rhetorical devices. He did not trust in his eloquence. He did not trust in his demonstration of human wisdom. He did not trust in his own wittiness, his own intelligence or abilities or capability. No, Paul knows, oh, he knows it too well, that these things might draw people to the speaker, but they will never draw people to Christ. And so look now at verse 3, the positive. He stated it negatively in verse 1. So how did he preach or proclaim Christ? Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much 
trembling. We can understand the fear and trembling in light of what we read back in Acts chapter 18. Do you recall? There he is on his second missionary journey. He's entered the city of Corinth. He is reasoning in the synagogues, right? He, undoubtedly in the marketplace, homes, wherever he can gather an audience. And he is opening up the scriptures and he is demonstrating, he is arguing that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. And he is proclaiming salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The city erupts. The antagonism and the hostility, palpable. And Paul is gripped with fear. I, I don't, I, I, you know, at times I think we, we think of Paul as, as superhuman, right? Su this superman, this individual. Um, Paul is so afraid. You go back and you read in Acts chapter 18. What does God have to do? He speaks to him in a vision and he assures him of what? No harm will come to you in this city. Was Paul thinking of running? I'm inclined to think he was. I'm out of here, this place, shaking off the dust from my robes. I'm moving on as quickly as I can. I can't put up with another beating. Can't put up with another scourging. Don't want people chucking rocks at me. I'm out of here. And God speaks to him through a vision to calm his fear and trembling. Paul no, you stay put. I promise you, no harm will come to you in this place. And he stays put for 18 months. And so we can understand part of that phrase back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, that when I was with you, I was preaching in fear and much trembling. But what, what, how, what sense are we to make of that first term? In weakness. I came to you in weakness. I think Paul himself sheds light on this in his second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 10, verse 10, where he makes this commentary regarding himself. His bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. He's a weak man. His bodily presence, he wouldn't catch your eye walking by him on the street, right? His speech, ugh. Painfully dull, perhaps. We don't know exactly what he means there, but certainly not like the sophists and the philosophers of his day and all of those gifted in rhetoric and all the complexities of language who are able to hold an audience spellbound without ever really saying anything of any content, simply the form itself drawing an audience to themselves. That's not Paul. And he came to them in weakness. And, and in so doing, the manner of his preaching was Christ exalting. Now, never forget this. Paul was not a charismatic, nor was he an inspirational individual. Paul isn't very engaging or compelling. Paul isn't very witty or trendy. You read his sermons and we soon discover that Paul doesn't seem to be in touch with the latest newspaper headlines. He seems to be sorely misinformed when it comes to the latest fads and philosophies. He is completely ignorant when it comes to the latest cultural trends or the latest world events. Everything that captures man's thoughts. There is nothing about Paul that is particularly attractive. And you know what? It's just the way Paul wants it. Just the way he wants it. His desire is to get out of the way so that people see Christ. That is the manner 
of his preaching. Thirdly, the motive of his preaching, it too is Christ-exalting. So we have a Christ-exalting message in verse 2. We have a Christ-exalting manner from what we've derived from verses 1 and 3. And now a Christ-exalting motive, verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that, here's the purpose clause, so here's his motive, here's the reason why his, his presence was so unimpressive and his speech and his preaching in weakness, here's why, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, so that the object of their faith would be fixed precisely where it should be fixed. There is nothing about Paul that can account for the conversion of these individuals in Corinth. There is nothing in Paul that accounts for that church that blossomed and grew during those 18 months of ministry. He preaches in weakness and fear and trembling, and the Corinthian believers did not receive Christ because Paul persuaded them, but because God enabled them. And therefore, the purpose clause in verse 5, their faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wit and humor will attract people. Zeal and passion will attract people. Cultural and political engagement, well, it'll pack out the house, won't it? Charisma will attract people. Gifts of rhetoric will attract people. Paul doesn't possess any of these things. The only way to account for the Corinthian believers is to look beyond Paul to God. It's a Christ-exalting message, a Christ-exalting manner, and a Christ-exalting motive. Now, the question is this. What purpose does this serve? So what? Why does he give this little autobiographical account sketch here at the opening of chapter 2? Remember the larger context. Go all the way back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, and what do we discover? Do you recall? This church is about to split apart. This church is about to self-destruct. Why? Because people are quarreling. Why are they quarreling? Because they've adopted worldly wisdom and they've adopted the values of their age and they are prostrating themselves before this idol which dominates the culture whereby people seek status, seek influence and the believers in the church at Corinth have even turned their church leaders into a means to an end by identifying by this one, identifying by this one, somehow seeking popularity and notoriety. And so Paul embarks on this lengthy section. It goes all the way through to the end of chapter four in which he is seeking to remind them of who they are and of the fact that they have lost sight of their identity in Christ. And in this particular section, he is reminding them that they have lost sight of Paul himself and of what Paul himself preached, of what Paul himself wanted, which is what? Verse two, I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ in whom crucified. And so if we can put words in his mouth, here is what he is in essence saying to them, you've forgotten those 18 months. You've forgotten how I came to you. You've forgotten what I said to you. You have forgotten the heartbeat of my ministry. The heartbeat of my ministry is the exaltation of Christ. You've forgotten that there is no explanation for you, a local church, other than the sovereign grace of God. Because if you look at me, Paul is saying, as a mere individual, you never should have believed anything that came out of my mouth. And the only possible explanation for it is the power of God. You've forgotten that. And now you're running around like a bunch of children. And you're fighting among yourselves and you're quarreling and you're ready to divide the church and you're all seeking to be something. Oh, you've forgotten, you've forgotten, you've forgotten. You have forgotten who you are in Christ Jesus, how you got there and what it means to be one with him. And in particular, what it means to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray we grasp the significance of that statement. And now Norm is going to bring, as I promised, that slide back up on the screen behind me. Again, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's the crux of the matter. The cross is absolutely crucial to everything. Our identity, here it is, the key to the Christian life, the believers in Corinth, their eyes are not fixed where they should be. Their eyes are fixed on the culture. Their eyes are fixed on what they want. Their eyes are fixed on their personal grievances and problems. And all the cracks are starting to appear in the church. And Paul is basically saying, get your eyes off yourself, back where they belong, and understand who you are in Christ Jesus. Here it is, the crux of the matter. We believe Christ was crucified for us. He bore the penalty for our sin on Calvary's cross. That is what I believe. This is the gospel. This is the main point. Believing it, I'm one with Christ. Therefore, in God's reckoning, I've been crucified with Christ. Yes, the penalty for my sin is paid in full. All that I was in Adam, the flesh, crucified in Christ. Now my calling is what? It is to see myself hanging on the cross. It is to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it is to live like it. It is now to actually act out who and what I am in Jesus Christ. Oh, this is what we're called to believe. There is something. Oh, I pray we get this. There is something intrinsic to the character of God that requires death as a payment for sin. Oh, I pray you are convinced of that. There is something intrinsic to the character of God that requires a payment for sin. I don't think there's any other religion in the world that teaches this. Judaism certainly doesn't teach it. Islam, no, 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 no. Every other religion in the world is ultimately what? Works-based. Every other religion in the world, finally, in the final analysis, final judgment, what are they hoping? God winks at sin. 
There is no atonement. There is no payment for sin. There is no looking away from self to Christ and to Christ alone. No, every other religion in the world is man-based, man-centered, works-oriented. It is ultimately about me. It is ultimately about what I do. Salvation depends ultimately in the final analysis on me, my life, my behavior, doing this, not doing that. And the hope is what? That the good outweighs the bad, or in the very least, this God will wink at sin. He doesn't wink at sin. That's a big problem. And therefore, the only way to have a relationship with him is if that sin is dealt with definitively. Is if atonement is made, a payment for that sin paid to him, whereby he is ready and willing to lavish forgiveness upon us. In my early 20s, there was a brother in the church where I was at the time. His name was Gary. He had been a missionary in Ireland for years, still living. And uh, back in in Toronto, he was a a street preacher and a rather effective street preacher. And uh, time to time, I would accompany him down to downtown Toronto, or sometimes we'd go to fairs and we would set up this little sketchboard. Is that what you would call it? I guess on a tripod and this big piece of paper here, and we would have these paints and he would preach and I'd maybe hand out tracks. And then the time came, you know what's coming. You know what he did? Stephen, you're going to preach this time. You're going to preach this time. So I stood up and I preached. And I preached a number of occasions after that. And I never deviated from that first message I preached. And it was really simple. And you've probably seen this before. If you can imagine this, little, this piece of paper here, I took out the, the black paint. And over here, I kind of drew this mountain, right? Which ran off the bottom of the page. And then over here, another mountain, And this one ran off the bottom of the page. And so what do you have between these two mountains? This unsurpassable, right? Gulf between them. And then I wrote the word man over here. It's pretty ingenious stuff, isn't it? And then I wrote over here, God, three letter words. I didn't want to get any big words and misspell something up there. Man, God. There you have it. God is infinite. We're finite. God is creator. We're creature. God is wise. We're not. God is powerful, we aren't. God is eternal, we aren't. God is holy, we aren't. There's a big problem. Because how are we who are not holy, as he is holy? How are we who are not perfect, as he is perfect? How are we who are riddled with sin, ever going to reach this God? We can't. Hence the need for what? Atonement. And then what did I draw? Come on, the cross, the crux of the matter. And the cross went right there in the middle and the cross beam obviously reaching from man to God. That was it. That was my sermon. Reconciliation through Christ with the blood of his cross. This, this is what we are called to believe. Do you believe it? I mean, really. Do you believe it when it is all said and done? And when you think on eternity and what is coming and maybe just around the corner. And when you think on what it will mean to meet uh, God. And a God who um, isn't pleased with us at all as we stand in and of ourselves. A God from whom we're actually alienated hostile in mind, 
a God against whom we have rebelled, a God against whom we, we sin and we sin daily and we sin in, sin in ways we're not even aware of, uh, what, what, what are you going to do? Where are you going to turn? Well, I did this. I did that. I wasn't like him. I wasn't like her. Friend, you only make up the words out of your mouth as your whole life plays there before your eyes and your absolute rebellion against the living God put on display under a magnifying glass. My friend, at that moment, you want to be able to do what? Say what? I'm with him. Exactly. I wasn't going to say that, but that's just as good. I'm with him. I'm with the Lord Jesus Christ because the cross is the crux of the matter. And I believe he bore my sin upon the cross. And I believe he bore your judgment upon the cross. And I'm looking away from myself and I believe in him. And I pray every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this place right now, you get it. You understand it. That this is what we must believe. But not only is it what we must believe, this is how we're called to live. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was a style of life. Hear these words. If you don't like them at first, if you don't agree with them at first, fine. But please think on them before you dismiss them too quickly. All right? Hear this, please. Christ saves us from hell through the cross. It's wonderful, isn't it? He saves us from hell, but God does not save us from the cross. Far too many of us think he does. He doesn't. He saves us from hell, but he doesn't save us from the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ himself makes it plain. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The key to the Christian life is believing. Christ was crucified for me. Sadly, that's where many of us want to stop. It's all past significance. Now I can kind of coast through life or live however I please. Uh-uh, my friend. It is believing I've been crucified with Christ. It's seeing myself hanging on the cross. And it is now living accordingly. To not live like this, in the words of 2 Timothy 3.5, is to possess the appearance of godliness while denying its power. Is that you? You possess the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power, meaning what? You do not live in the reality of the cross. You cannot say with Paul, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to sins? It's a good question. Our envy, anger, bitterness, lust, impatience, prejudice, greed. What about our unguarded words and unfiltered thoughts? We must see all of these things P. 
pinned to the cross and reckoned ourselves daily dead to them. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to our desires, our self-love? I want to be in control. I want to be uppermost. I want my own way. I want to be esteemed. And do we see all of these things breathing their last upon Calvary's cross, whereby we reckon ourselves dead to them in Christ? Therefore, whenever we must choose between them and Christ, we choose Christ. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to our comforts? Nothing morally wrong with comfort. Don't misunderstand me. But do we love it? The love of ease. The love of a hassle-free life. The love of food and sleep. The love of peace and quiet. As one preacher puts it, I don't want opposition. I want approval. I don't want shame. I want honor. I don't want suffering. I want comfort. I don't want to die. I want to be safe, to be secure, and to stay alive. We already died, my friends. We died with Christ. And the life we now live, we live by faith in Christ, the one who loved us. And gave himself up for us. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to offenses? You offend me. Maybe I offend you. Hard to imagine, but it's possible. Do we know the power of Christ crucified? And how we respond when people disagree with us. Mistreat us. When people are selfish, unfair, abrupt, and insensitive, do we take offense? Do we get snarky and sarcastic? Do we get testy and tenacious? One more. Do we get crusty and combative? Or do we understand the crux of the matter? I believe Christ was crucified for me. I am now one with him. I've been crucified with Christ. I see myself, all that I am in Adam, and my self-love and all those idols nailed to the cross. And now I'm going to live accordingly. And this is going to be evident and seen and plain in my, my response when things don't go my own way. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to our relationships? with Our spouse, our children, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Are these marked by bitterness, anger, sarcasm, plain old nastiness? Oh, no, to know Christ and him crucified is to heed Paul's admonition, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. One more. Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to troubles? Troubles. 
the loss of health, the loss of friends, the loss of family, the loss of life. Let's stick with Paul. Listen to his words out of Philippians chapter 3. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To know Christ and him crucified. To become like him in his death. Dead to ourselves. Dead to all we are in Adam. Dead, again, I say it, to that great idol known as self-love. And to know Christ and his far surpassing work. We know the well-known hymn, right? When I survey the wondrous cross. I've been singing that as long as I can remember. And this past week, I was thinking of one of the lines out of it and felt a little embarrassed as I reminded myself of this line and how many times I have sung it over the years. Here it is. You know it. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Really? Really? What is he saying? I think he is echoing precisely what Paul makes abundantly clear in our text. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. It is what we are called to believe. And it is how we are called to live. Our Father, our Father in heaven above, give us wisdom, we pray for these things. Who among us, in their own strength, can consider and apply what we have just pondered together. We acknowledge our complete dependence upon you, your grace, the working of your spirit by your word in us. And so we pray that you would work powerfully and effectually this day, that you would give us eyes to see and to understand Christ crucified and the claim you have on our lives. For unbelievers in our midst, we pray that you would awaken them this day. Show them their sin, show them who they really are in your sight. And convince them of the wonders of your love and mercy and grace for all who come to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. These things we seek for his glory and ask in his name. Amen.